love to hear the singing. Even this early in the morning, it sounded great. And before Mike steps out, I want to say a big thank you to the Southland staff. Let's give them all a round of applause. You all are so blessed to have Southland fairly nearby to come for a camp like this, for a retreat like this. And everything is so well done and clearly so well planned out down to the detail. And I know that takes a lot of blood, sweat, and tears from a lot of people. And um, they have put it in. And it's all for the sake of the ministry and for your sake to allow you a time to get away and to focus on the Word of God. So thank you, Southland staff. I know some of you are in here, some of you aren't. But thank you for all you've poured in to this weekend and really to this camp um, all year round. I hope that song, Christ is Sufficient, sticks with you when you leave. You can take the music with you. You can go to the website, and it's actually free to print off. There's lots of other hymns on the same website that you can use in your ministry. Um, and they're doctrinally sound and wonderful songs for you to meditate, new hymns for you to meditate on the things of the Lord. And I hope that that uh, catchy tune sticks in your head and you remember when you hear that song, our retreat, and you remember our theme of Christ being sufficient. Um, today we're going to um, veer a little bit away from Colossians and we are going to really apply what we've been learning in, from Colossians about focusing our, our, our attention on the true realities and letting those realities inform everything that's going on down here. We're going to apply it to a specific area of our lives. We're going to apply it to the area of our emotions. And so I know you look at your notes and you go, there's a lot more blanks for this workshop, <laughs> for this session than there were for the others. It's because I put a blank for almost everything and we're going to move through it very quickly. So don't be worried that we're here, stuck here for three hours. Uh, we're going to move through this quickly, so don't worry. Just get ready to write. <laughs> um, I've read a book recently when my kids were a little younger called Loving the Little Years by Rachel Jankovic. Has anybody ever read that book? And in that book, it's very helpful, actually, as a young mom um, to put the little years in perspective. But she has a lot of girls in her home, and so do I. And so she talked about how she dealt with this topic of emotions with her little girls. And she said she, she likened them to wild horses. And I love that picture. You know, if you look in your, um, your notes, the introduction, I'll read it out loud. It says, emotions are like wild horses. And that's where I got that concept, that idea. I love that picture. Undeniably strong and beautiful. Look at this picture. I mean, this is gorgeous. Some of you are really into horses and you just love a picture like this. You like to put it on your wall at home, right? Because it's beautiful. But also potentially dangerous, if not broken and harnessed. Look at this picture. Horses can be useful. They've been useful in our country, in the history of our country, especially taming the wild, wild west, right? And uh, if, you can, if you can harness the power of a wild horse, it can do a lot of good. And that's how our emotions are. Like me, you may have experienced the strength of emotions, such as fear, anger, longing, or pain, and felt like you were being wildly, helplessly dragged away from rational thoughts and sensible choices. Have you been there? I've been there. If so, you know how vulnerable you are to being controlled instead of being in control. And you understand the kind of damage that unrestrained emotions, like unrestrained wild horses, can do in a short amount of time. So how can we harness the power, energy, and beauty of our God-given emotions rather than being overcome by them? How can we use our emotions as tools to love instead of weapons to manipulate? Well, we can do it by actively responding to life based on what we've been talking about from Colossians, based on God's truth, not passively reacting to life based on our own feelings. We can do it by fixing our minds on the true reality that we've been talking about rather than believing our own skewed interpretation of reality. So this is a very more of a practical session for us to go, Lord, this is something we all have because we've been given it by God. What do we do with it? How can we apply the true realities to this area of emotions that is very, very strong in our lives? So like I said, we're going to move quickly, but hopefully you'll stay with me and, and uh, be able to stay engaged. So emotions, first of all, are tools of communication. Um, people who write instead of speak are at a disadvantage in some ways, right? Uh, one blogger that I read said, in written communication, we have our faces tied behind our backs. You know, so we have punctuation marks, we have exclamation points, and sometimes we use 45 of them. We have the ellipses, you know, all the dashes, all the, the cool things that we have. But we're limited, right? Until emojis came along, right? <laughs> How many of you sent a text message today or yesterday? 
Yeah, okay, and how many of you used an emoji, right? We're, we're, we, I don't know what we would do without them now, right? These emojis here are the top five emojis used on Twitter in 2021. And I have a little quiz for you. You're going to put them in order. Is it A, is it B, or is it C? Raise your hand if you think, so order from most used, sorry, to least used. So the first one would be the most used, last one least used of the top five. Okay, so is it A? Who, raise your hand if you think it's A, if the red heart comes first. Okay, what about B? Red heart right in the middle. Okay, what about C? All right, wow, it's about even. If you said C, you were correct. This is the correct order of the emojis that were used on Twitter in 2021. And uh, yes, and most of them involve tears. <laughs> Three out of five involve tears, right? Either laughing tears or crying tears. Um, but emotions are tools of communication. We can say the same thing in a text message or an email or something, but mean vastly different things based on the emotion behind it. We need to be able to express ourselves in emotions. You know, when we do it when we're speaking, it's facial expression, it's our hand gestures, it's our body language. You know, like, um, let's see, 7% of communication is verbal, 93% is nonverbal, right? And so a lot of what we communicate to each other is based on body language. And that's why with written, and things are becoming more and more, you know, written texting, emails and all that, we need this kind of thing to help us to express what we mean, not just what we're saying, but what we mean. Communicating the emotion that you mean is just as important as the words that you use. Emotions are essential. We don't suppress them or pretend like they're not there because we really do need them. They're tools God has given us. Emotions are part of God's image in us. God is an emotional being. We see that in scripture. He experiences joy, sorrow, anger, delight, empathy, regret, longing, and desire. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Well, that's because we're created in his image. We express emotion. We are emotional beings because God is, and they're gifts to us to express ourselves. And we experience them, and there's nothing wrong with experiencing them. Now, we're human. God is not human, so he does not experience fear or loneliness, or some emotions that are unique to us living in this realm on the earth, someday in heaven, we won't experience those emotions either. But um, they're part of God's image in us. Emotions are a good apologetic for a creator. You know, if you talk to naturalists or materialists or evolutionists, it's really hard for them to explain the existence of emotions because they're part of our spiritual nature. They're part of the, the not the physical part of us that we can see and um, you know, find chemical formulas for. There's no chemical formulas for emotions. And they're trying really hard to find that, but they really haven't put their finger on it, and they won't, because it's part of our spiritual nature. Emotions add variety and grace to life. Anybody recognize this picture or know what book this picture is from? Some of you may have some ideas. This is a picture, yes, do you know? That's okay. It's from the silver chair, from C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair. And these are earthmen that are pictured on the front. And in the silver chair, C.S. Lewis created these characters who were under an enchantment and allowed only one emotion, and that was sadness. You can see it on their faces. They are dull creatures who toil drudgingly along as slaves of the wicked queen of underworld until the children in the story suddenly break the spell. The Earthmen wake up then, and they remember life before their enchantment, life that included games and laughter, dancing and friendship. They joyfully hurry back to their old home to enjoy the fullness and color of life with a full range of emotions. And if you've read the book, you'll remember the contrast of these creatures before and after their enchantment. And the point of that is that, e that life without emotions, even the hard ones, is dull and graceless. We would not want to live in a world where emotions were suppressed and where people did not feel free to express their emotions. But again, unrestrained, they cause a lot of damage. So we have to learn how to restrain them and how to harness them and harness their energy. So emotions add variety to life. God gave us emotions to use as tools of communication and to enjoy life. But just like every other good thing that God created, what has Satan done? He's twisted it hasn't he? He's taken things God meant to be good and wonderful and help us to have an abundant, joyful life, and he's twisted them against God. And that's what we're going to study today and look, about it, look at, and we're going to figure out what we can do about it. How has Satan done this, and what can we do about it to combat it? 
Here's our main idea. Satan wants us to use our emotions as weapons, but God wants us to use them as tools. How can we do that? This is from this idea is from a picture in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 2:4 says that in time to come in the millennial kingdom, swords will be beaten into plowshares. In other words, weapons that they used in battle will be not needed anymore at all. And so they'll be changed into something that's useful for gardening. Um, and that could be used to make things grow and make things beautiful. And I love that picture of peace. That is the ideal, isn't it? That's what we all long for. Um, and it won't come perfectly until the millennial kingdom, until Christ is ruling on the earth. But in the meantime, we can use this concept to, to change our focus, change our perspective about our emotions. So how do we know if our emotions are weapons or tools? Well, we can know by understanding how they've been corrupted and how they can be corrected. So first of all, how have they been corrupted? This is the bad news, right? Our emotions have been corrupted by Satan, and he started it way back in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden. What did he do? Well, first of all, in the very beginning, Satan wanted to destroy what God had created to be good, right? And Satan's target... If we think about who Satan's target really is, we'd like to think maybe that it's us sometimes, or we may think that, but we're just kind of caught in the crossfire, really. Satan's target is God. And in the beginning, it was God through his perfect creation. What happened in the Garden of Eden? Eve's longing for knowledge, Satan capitalized on, right? He saw that, and he said, that's where I can get at her. She wants to know more. She wants to be like God, right? She already had all she needed, right? All that God wanted her to have. She had all the knowledge she needed. But Satan capitalized on her longing for knowledge, and it led to the first sin. We read about that in Genesis 3. We won't take time to turn, but we know the story. A little bit later on in the book of Genesis, Cain's anger at God led to the first murder. Again, Satan capitalized on an emotion, <clears throat> and it led to a terrible thing, the first murder that was ever done on earth there in Genesis chapter 4. A little bit later on in just the book of Genesis, right? Think about Rebecca and Jacob. Uh, Rebecca had been told that Jacob would receive the inheritance, that he would receive the blessing, and she didn't see that things were quite going that way. Isaac was just about to bless Esau, right? So what did she do? Her fear that God was not going to come through caused her to take things into her own hands and manipulate the situation so that Jacob would get the blessing. And guess what? He did get the blessing, but it, the fallout of all that was terrible for their family. Jacob and Rebecca never saw each other again. And so their, that fear led to manipulation. And that's just Genesis, right? Keep reading in scripture. You'll find a lot more examples of this same thing. Satan has been at this for a very, very long time. And he still is. In the present, right now, in the culture we're living in, in the 21st century, who is, who is Satan's target? Well, it's still God, and it's through humanity. It's through our culture. Our culture is obsessed with positive emotions. Have you noticed that? <laughs> hey, they really are. And Satan, it seems, is, is winning the battle in this area. We are dominated by wanting to have good emotions and wanting to make sure everybody has good emotions. It's not possible, is it? We're, we're seeing that. Not everyone can have positive emotions all at the same time. <laughs> God's, uh, Satan's target is still through humanity, is still God through humanity. Let's look at just a few examples of this real quickly. Parents in our culture, they have a hard time saying no to their children because they're more concerned about how kids feel than what they do, right? And what does that lead to? Child-centered parenting. It creates kids with no coping skills who can't ever take no for an answer. And it's really sad because that's the next generation of adults in our society. This is playing out in the lives of the families of our country, and they don't know any better. Teachers, maybe some, there are some teachers in here, and you've found yourself being frustrated with this. Teachers, in some scenarios, can't give a failing grade to a failing student or a trophy to the winner because it might hurt someone's feelings, or they might get a label like racist or sexist, right? So they just don't. They just aren't. They can't be honest about how the students are doing. Judges in our society... Judges can't or maybe won't apply the law justly because of the psychological distress it might put on the criminal. 
Kind of backward thinking, isn't it? But you know, millions of dollars are spent every year on psychological care of prisoners in our prison system. And uh, that's just a fallout of this obsession with good, positive emotions. Victimization culture we've seen rising in our society. Everyone's a victim. Everyone has a grievance about something, right? This has led to cancel culture. We saw this just a couple years ago, um, really rise to the surface. Everyone's a victim, and so we have to erase anything that might create emotional distress for anyone. What did that lead to? Statues being torn down, right? History trying to be erased. Books and foods canceled, right? Isn't that crazy? Team names being changed. You know, we might try using these offensive things to teach the next generation and to help us learn from history rather than erasing it. Because guess what? If we erase it like it never even happened, they won't even know what happened and it will repeat itself over and over and over again. It'll be a vicious cycle. But you know, Satan really seems to have gained the upper hand in this way in our country. The term snowflake has emerged to refer to people who are so emotionally fragile that they can't bear to consider any ideas but their own. They shout down anyone who dares to disagree with them or offers an alternate perspective. Maybe this is a product of our education system, right? The children who were never told no are now becoming adults and they're victims and they're, they've become snowflakes. Have you ever thought about what if Christ had been a snowflake? What if he couldn't have taken the persecution and would never have died for our sins? I mean, it's almost silly to think about, but think about this. What if Christians are snowflakes? What if we are so emotionally fragile that we can't interact with people who don't see it just the way we do. Well, no one's gonna to go to the mission field, right? Nobody's going to witness to their neighbors because they don't want to get their feelings hurt or be rejected. This is a serious thing for us to really consider. Am I emotionally fragile? Am I a snowflake? Am I buying into the spirit of the age and becoming like the culture? We live in the culture, we're products of our culture, we can't help that, and we're bombarded with it. And sometimes we may give in to this, this wrong thinking. Into the future, I think this is going to continue to happen. Satan's target is still going to be God, but I think more than ever, it's going to be through his people. We already see it in some ways, even within the church. Um, more than ever, even believers struggle with weaponizing what God created to be good. It may be a blind spot for us, but Satan capitalizes on our obsession with feeling good and having positive emotions. We have to ask ourselves, are we joining his side by weaponizing our emotions against God? Here's a good test for us. Anytime an emotion leads me to justify sin, and by sin I'm talking about maybe not the big sins, but the respectable ones, the, the smaller ones that we can hide that we talked about yesterday, Maybe it leads me to justify gossiping or being disrespectful to my husband, unkind to my children, unkind to someone in the body of Christ. We could go on and on. Anytime an emotion leads me to justify that, it has become a weapon. And you know, weapons always have targets. We've talked about that. Sometimes we're our own target. We hurt ourselves the most when we're out of control with our emotions. Sometimes it's somebody that we love. Sometimes it's the body of Christ, the church. But ultimately, whatever of those things it is, it's always God, ultimately, our target. So we are siding with Satan when we allow our emotions to take over in our lives and become an obsession. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to look at six different emotions, and we're going to look at what they look like weaponized, right? This is uncomfortable. This was uncomfortable for me to study for because I do these things sometimes in my life. And God has changed me through this study. He really has. Um, and then we're going to talk about how these can be fixed and then what these same emotions look like under the control of the Holy Spirit through Scripture. So first of all, empathy. Empathy is a good thing, right? We all love to have an empathetic friend. We all want to be an empathetic friend. But what does empathy look like weaponized? Well, it looks like taking up someone else's offense, especially when you know only one side of the story. Feeling empathy to the point that you despise someone else or sin in some other way for the sake of your friend. She's mad at that person, well, so am I. I don't care what the other side of the story is because I'm an empathetic person, right? Remember, your friend has access to grace for her trial that you don't have because it's not your trial. God could be trying to accomplish something greater and better in her life, like Christ-likeness, right? And we're short-circuiting that. We're working against him without even realizing it. I found an article 
um, by Jeanne Harrison and ReviveOurHearts.com, and it kind of talked about this. It was called How Mama Bear Hurts Her Family. Because, you know, I think mama bears have to be careful not to be too empathetic, not to allow our empathy to override our good sense and our desire for our children to be like Christ more than anything. She said this. She said, you don't have to be loud and obnoxious to be a mama bear. You just have to care too much about the well-being of your family. You have to idolize it, to bow down and worship it, so that if anybody in your household isn't okay, nothing's okay. You see, the thing about mama bears is that deep down we long to control our universe. Sound familiar? So that we can protect the people we love. I've known that mama bears, like me, are protective and controlling, but this was the first time I realized that we're also selfish. So selfish, in fact, that we're willing to short-circuit what God wants to do in someone's life just so we don't have to endure the discomfort of watching it. That was convicting to me. Because I have children, and I love my children. I don't want people to hurt my children. But you know what? God can use other people hurting them to make them like Christ. And I have to be okay with that as their mom. So empathy, weaponized. What about longing? We all have things that we long for, that we really, really want to happen very badly. And that's normal. You know, that's natural. It's natural to want to get married. It's natural to want a child. It's natural to want a comfortable life and a good job and a good marriage. Those are all good things to long for. But longing weaponized looks like wanting something, perhaps even something good and proper, so much that it dominates your thoughts, turning into an obsession, then an idol, then an addiction. There's not a very big jump from longing to addiction. Maybe you've noticed that in your own life or in the life of somebody that you love. In the book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis says this about our longings. He said, we may give to our human loves or longings the unconditional allegiance which we owe only to God. Then they become gods. Then they become demons. Then they will destroy us and also destroy themselves. For natural loves that are allowed to become gods do not remain loves. They are still called so, but they can become, in fact, complicated forms of hatred. Here's a little checklist to ask ourselves, am I addicted to anything? And this is not exhaustive. I didn't really get this from any book. I got this from my own life, my own experience. And I'll share it with you. Am I addicted to anything? Well, we are when our normal relationships are disturbed because we want something so, so badly. We can't focus on the relationships that God has given us right here in front of us. I'll do almost anything to get more. I'll use deceit to cover it up, deceitful words or actions to cover it up, maybe even lie outright. It dominates my thoughts. It's my default setting when I have nothing else to think about, or even when I do have other things to think about. It's what automatically comes into my mind. It dominates my thoughts. I'll rearrange my schedule just to get more. And I have to hide it. All of these things are symptoms of an addiction, right? And we think of addiction as you know, drugs or alcohol or those big things that people become physically addicted to. But we can also be addicted to our emotions. Ask me how I know. Um, I've experienced it. And we have to be very careful to notice it when it's happening and go, this is longing gone way too far. This is longing being weaponized. And it's, da- it's damaging. It's dangerous. What about fear? Fear weaponized. What does this look like? Isolationism, right? Victimization. We talked about that. Being a conspiracy theorist. Everyone in the world is out to get me. Paranoia, right? Anxiety, depression. There's no, again, there's not a big jump from fear to depression. You know, there's a lot of talk in our circles about depression, and there's more questions than answers. Is it caused by a chemical imbalance that is beyond its victim's control? Or does a person's natural fleshly response to normal sadness create the chemical imbalance in the first place and spiral down from there? How is it treated? Can the root cause of depression even be treated? Or can only the symptoms be treated? Is the cure worse than the problem? There's so many questions and not as many answers. I've read this book recently, Rethinking Depression, Not a Sickness, Not a Sin. It's by a friend of mine, Daniel Berger, who has spent most of his adult life studying these topics. And if you have someone in your life or if you personally have struggled with depression, this is a wonderful resource. And I will warn you, it's written like a textbook. It's thick and it's deep. 
So it's not a, you know, it's not a devotional book <laughs> at all. But it's very helpful to help you understand what depression really is and how to get out of it. So if you're interested in that, you can write down that title and look up that book. It's on Amazon. It's been really helpful for me. So fear, weaponized, looks like that. Desire, weaponized. A little different from longing. Desire is just like, well, this is how I want things to be. This is how I think things should be. I want everything to be perfectly organized like I think they should be. And this leads to controlling manipulation of other people, maybe of your husband or your kids or your friends or anyone who stands in the way of what you think is best. It makes yourself the all-wise one who knows what should happen and how it should happen and when it should happen, right? Which is pride. It leads to broken relationships and regret. Again, we saw this with Rebecca and Jacob. They wanted something so much that they were, able to, they were willing to short-circuit God's plan to make it happen their way and uh, makes you a manipulative person. And uh, maybe some of you struggle with that. I know I can. You know, being the mom at home, wanting everyone to just do exactly what they're supposed to do when they're supposed to do it, and using my emotions to control them rather than sensibly talking things through and bringing them over to my side if that's what really needs to happen. Anger, weaponized. This one's the easiest one to picture. You know, you picture the drunken husband coming home and beating up his family, right? That is an ugly picture, and that's what anger looks like weaponized. Rash, impatient, impulsive actions and out-of-control behavior that almost immediately brings deep regret and hurts other people. But there's another side to this, isn't there? Maybe you're not the violent kind. Maybe you're the kind that just lets it fester in your heart and you resent and you mull it over, over and over and over in your mind and you become a bitter person. That could be even worse, right, than the outward violent actions that are over with in just a few minutes. And it bears terrible fruit in your later years. You become that bitter old lady that nobody wants to be around. Anger weaponized looks like that. Do you justify your anger? Recently, we had some small groups going on up at Maranatha, and I had a girl at my, in my small group, and we were talking about what to look for in a husband, in a future husband. And so I let them kind of go around and share what they were looking for, like their number one thing, besides being a Christian and walking with the Lord. Like, what are you looking for? And she said, well, I'm going to have to marry somebody patient because I have an anger problem. <laughs> you know, and I thought, that's kind of sad that she has been conditioned or learned to expect everyone else to accommodate her anger problem. You have to be patient with me because I'm just angry. It's just the way I am. Do you justify that? Do you look for other people to accommodate you? Or do you learn to let the spirit control your emotions um, so that you can be a blessing to other people? And then emotional pain. This is our last one. From disappointment or loss. This looks like unhealthy grief, excessive self-focus. It might lead to charging God foolishly like Job's wife did, saying or believing untrue things about God. Um, emotional pain, we all experience it. If you're not now, you will, and you probably have. And this can be weaponized very easily because we're vulnerable when we are grieving. I love these pictures I'm going to show you because it shows how people in our world have taken things that were used as weapons and made them into tools. Here's a picture of a T-62 tank that was used in some war. And someone has taken it and turned it into a tractor to be used in farming. Isn't that neat? Isn't that a beautiful thing? Um, that, that, that much power energy has, has, that was used to blow, pe blow people up, blow buildings up, and now it's being used for such a useful purpose. This one is very obvious, what it used to be. <laughs> In its former life, it was a gun. And there's a man named Jim Cairns, and he takes um, guns, old guns, old rifles, whatever, and he turns them into musical instruments. Isn't that neat? A tool to make beautiful music. This right here is the formula for mustard gas that was used in World War I to blind people, basically, and to subdue the enemy. And after the war, some scientists got a hold of this, and they said, maybe we can make use of this. And so they turned it into something, now the drug chlorambucil, that's used to treat leukemia. Isn't that cool? And then the last one here is a picture of a statue. And this statue is actually called Swords to Plowshares. It comes from the scripture in Isaiah that I mentioned. It's in New York City. It's, near the, it's in front of the UN building. And it was a gift from the USS, former USSR in 1959 to um, make the, the statue the picture of world peace. 
Again, our world wants this, right? We don't want to be fighting wars all the time. Most of us don't want to be fighting wars all the time. They want peace, they just don't know how to get it. But I think that's interesting that even our world wants this. They want to turn things that were used as weapons into tools. So how can this happen with our emotions? How can we correct our emotions? Our emotions can be corrected by scripture. We're told in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even of the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. What has that power? Our emotions, our lectures, our, you know, the books that we read? No, it's the word of God. And for you young moms out there, I learned very quickly that my lectures and my impatience with my children don't get very far. But when I used scripture with them, it was amazing how the Lord took that scripture and used it to change them. And I learned real quick, let's just do the scripture first, right? Let's go there first, and then we'll apply it because it got both of our hearts in the right place. Use scripture with your kids. Use scripture with yourself. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's of profit in our lives for what? For doctrine, to show us what's right. For reproof, to show us what's wrong. For correction, to show how to get what's wrong right. And for instruction in righteousness, to show us how to keep it right. The word of God is powerful, and it is our number one tool in this area. I want you to look at the screen right now. You don't have to copy all these down. We're not going to turn to all these passages. But all of these passages have one thing in common. If you were to look them up, you would find that all of them talk about being sober-minded. And this is our answer to controlling and harnessing the power of our emotions. What is sober-mindedness? It means not captivated by any influence that could lead us away from sound judgment. And the, what I want our takeaway today to be is not how do I feel when something happens. Instead, how should I think? Because our thinking will inform and change our emotions. Not how do I feel. Instead, how should I think? So scripture informs our thinking. That is where the power is. It's in scripture. The Holy Spirit taking the scripture and doing what he promised to do with it. Changing our minds and changing our lives what scripture? Well, we're going to look at four of those that were up on the screen just a minute ago. Titus 2, 1 through 6. I want you to listen to, I'm going to read this. I want you to listen to how many times the word sober or sober-minded comes up. Now, this is having to do with the local church and how the older generation should be teaching the younger generation and what they should be teaching them. There's not a very long list, right? But listen how many times sober-mindedness comes up. He says this, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, and patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, or sober. Teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. This is mentioned quite a few times in just a few verses. So this is really important in our relationships and in our teaching to the next generation. We must be sober-minded because it's connected to understanding sound doctrine. If we're taken away by our passions and emotions, we will not be able to grasp sound doctrine. The book of 1 Peter talks a lot about um, sober-mindedness. And interestingly enough, this was written to believers who were being persecuted and whose culture was getting worse and worse and worse. Sound familiar? Our culture is getting worse and more and more godless. So what's the answer? Well, he, uh, he tells them repeatedly, be sober. In verse, uh, chapter, or chapter 1, verse 13, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here, sober thinking is connected to holy living. Uh, 1 Peter 4, 7, same book a little bit later. He says this, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, controlled, and watch unto prayer. Here, sober thinking is connected to being prepared for Christ's coming and to having our prayers answered, to praying effectively. So it's an important thing. It's not just so we feel better and we're a better wife and mom or a better daughter or a better person. 
This is connected to really spiritual things. It's important that we be sober-minded. 1 Peter 5.8 is a very familiar verse. Be sober, be vigilant, always watching, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Here, sober thinking is connected to fighting temptation. We all face temptation. We need help with that. And sober thinking will help us. And then one more, Romans 12.3. We won't take time to turn there. But it says that we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think soberly. Here, sober thinking is connected to humility and our proper function in the body of Christ, in the church. And you know what? God is able for all of these things. God never asks us to do something, think soberly in this case, that he doesn't give us the grace to do. 1 Peter 5, 7 tells us to cast our care on him. We can share our emotions with God because he cares for us. We can be sober-minded because we know God cares for us. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for thee. He can handle our emotions. He can help us rein them in and think soberly so that we can live as his children on earth. Our emotions are not too heavy for God. We can tell him all about them. So scripture informs our thinking and then being sober-minded, sober thinking then regulates our emotions. Sober thinking regulates or harnesses our emotions. Remember, it's not how do I feel when something happens. So often we're just quick to default to, well, how does that make me feel? No, that's the wrong question. Instead, it's how should I think, right? One is passive. One sort of happens to you. And one is active. One is a choice for you to make to go, nope, I'm going to think this way and I'll let my feelings follow along behind. We can't always control our emotions, but we can control our thinking. And we're going to see that practically here in just a minute. So sober thinking regulates our emotions. So what do we do? How do we, how do we let this happen in our lives? Well, first of all, we inform our thinking. We learn to respond rather than react. And sometimes this takes stepping back from a situation for a moment and reminding yourself, okay, it's not about how I feel. How should I think about this situation? How, what is the biblical principle that would inform my thinking about the situation? And again, we have to know God's word in order to even know that. We have to give the spirit something to work with, don't we? So here's how we do that. We intensify our personal Bible study. You notice I put Bible in all caps because I think it's easy to read books about the Bible. And it's a little harder. It takes a little more work to read the Bible itself and to take apart the scripture that is there in front of you without reading a book about it, right? Without reading someone else's thoughts about it first. Go to it, take it apart, figure out what it means and how it applies to you. Memorize scripture. When I'm trying to do this or when I'm struggling through this, I always put verses, pertinent verses on little three by five cards. And I put them on my mirror when I'm getting ready in the morning so I can't help but look at it. I put them by my sink so when I'm doing the dishes or fixing meals, it's right there. It's in front of me all day long. I can't escape it. And uh, the word of God fills your mind that way by default. It's almost like the easy way to get God's word in your mind. It's taking the time to put it down on cards. Remember this perspective. God's purpose through a trial is more important than ending the trial. That is hard because we want out, don't we? We want it to be done. But we have to remember that God's purpose through it is more important than ending it. M-Y-O-B. Who knows what that stands for? Mind your own business, right? Limit your time on social media because social media usually does not aid us in being sober-minded, right? It causes us to react with our emotions first and uh, think, how do I feel, not how should I think? So limit it. Doesn't mean you can't be on it at all. I went on to social media fast for a while and it was wonderful. (laughs) Um, You know, in, in some ways we have to be on social media to know what's going on and communicate with people, but we don't have to be on it all the time. We don't have to just default to scrolling through social media. We need to study to be quiet and do our own business, as 1 Thessalonians 4.11 tells us. And then learn to nip it, right? As soon as something happens, if you start thinking rightly from the very beginning, then our emotions don't have a chance to take over. I've heard it said, think your way into a new set of feelings. Let the sober-minded control of the Holy Spirit help you think about things rightly so that your emotions follow. Your emotions will eventually follow. Let's look at those six emotions again 
and talk about what it looks like when they are used as tools to help other people rather than weapons to hurt ourselves and other people. What about empathy? Empathy helps us feel what another person is feeling and offer true help instead of just a Band-Aid. A believer with a pilgrim mentality will desire for her sister in Christ or her child to become like Christ more than she desires her to be free of the trial. Now, that doesn't mean you leave someone in an unsafe situation or you don't care about what they're going through, but you encourage them. It won't be whatever it takes to end this trial. Let's just do it. Just divorce your husband. That's the easiest thing to do. No, it'll be, let's work through this. Stick by your friend's side. Stick by your child's side through the ups, through the downs, through the hard times, and always reminding them of God's promises and what God is doing in their lives and what's going to happen when they get to the end of this trial. A couple of verses there I listed for suggested truth to help with our, our thinking about empathy. James 1, 2 through 4 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have that perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, complete, wanting nothing. And then Romans 8, 29, we talked about last night. All things work together for good, but what is that good? Well, Romans 8, 29 tells us that that good is conformity to Jesus Christ. So keep that in front of your person that you're trying to help. God is conforming you to his image, to the image of Christ, and that is a good thing. It's not comfortable and it's painful, but I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to stay with you. You can always talk to me. That is a truly empathetic friend who really wants the best for her child or for her friend. What about longing, longing used as a tool? Well, let's think about what we're really longing for. What's at the rock bottom of all of our longings? Well, perfection, right? Paradise, the, the Garden of Eden, how things were then, heaven. That is what we're really longing for. And when we feel the pull of longing for something on this earth that we think will create this earthly paradise, or at least get us closer to that, we have to refocus our thinking. Paul Tripp sends out a, an e, a blog every week on Wednesday. It's called Wednesday's Word. And this really stuck out to me one time when I read it. He said this, let's confess, much, much of our existence is a frenetic attempt to build a paradise in a broken world. The house is never quite right. The kids never seem to measure up. Our spouse is never quite able to please us. Our friends are never quite loyal enough. The finances are never quite secure enough. We can't even meet our own expectations for ourselves. No wonder we're frustrated, discouraged, and exhausted. We're trying to find hope in a physical world that is terribly broken by sin. You know, nothing on earth will ever create that perfect paradise for us. Nothing on earth will satisfy us. I remember at my daughter, my oldest daughter's sixth birthday party, she got this beautiful, expensive doll from her nana. And she opened it up, and she, she knew it was coming because all of her cousins get this doll for their birthday their sixth birthday. And uh, she opened it up and she looked at it and she, she held it for a few minutes and played with it. And a couple minutes later, she goes, pretty soon I'm going to be tired of this doll. I thought, oh, Megan, <laughs> you just hurt your Nana's feelings. Thankfully, Nana laughed it off. And we, we kind of laughed about it because isn't that human nature? You know, we get what we think we want. She'd been looking forward to getting this particular doll. And then she recognized, even as a child, in a few weeks, I'm not even going to be satisfied with this anymore. We're not much better as adults, are we? We get what we think we want, and we see that it brings disappointment. And there's a letdown when we get what we think we want. I remember when um, we really, really wanted a child, and we were praying for a child. And, you know, I came to the point where I thought, God, you're never going to give this to me. But then the Lord helped me understand that even having this desire, this thing that everybody wants to, every woman wants to have a child in her arms, even that would not satisfy the longing of my soul. I thought it might for a little while, but you know what? There are trials that come with children, aren't there? And there are late nights and there are sleepless nights. Some of you are in that stage right now. And it doesn't satisfy the longing of your soul. In fact, it gives you more problems, <laughs> right? We have to tell ourselves the truth about what we're longing for. It will never bring the satisfaction we think it will, even if we get it in the exact time and exact way that we were longing for it. Psalm 84.11 says, No good thing will God withhold from them that walk uprightly. Um, and 107.9, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Okay, what about fear? We talked about this a few minutes ago. 
when my sister was going through cancer and I knew as a nurse, as an oncology nurse, I knew I'd watched people die before, my patients, and I knew what that moment was like. And it's hard enough when it's someone you're not emotionally connected to, to watch it and to watch the family and to watch them grieve. But I didn't know how I would ever handle that with my sister, my best friend. And I dreaded that moment for all the 10 months that she was in treatment. And as we saw her declining, I thought, here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. What, when's it going to come? And I dreaded it. But you know what? When the moment came when God took her out of her sick body and she went to be with God, it was a beautiful moment. It was not at all like I had dreaded. Now, it was hard because it meant the end and the new beginning that was going to be difficult to adjust to. But it was almost a holy moment, if you know what I mean. I think for a moment she was on earth, and then she was with God. And I had to let her go and let Christ take her from there. But I trusted him, and I knew where she was going. And so what I learned from that is we spend a lot of mental energy dreading things that we think are going to be really hard coming down the road. And when we get there, what does 2 Corinthians 12, 9 tell us? My grace is sufficient. The grace will be there when you need it, not before, right? The grace you need right now is to tell yourself the truth about your fear and about your dread, and there's grace for that too. But when that thing happens, even if it happens in the worst possible way you could ever imagine, God's grace is there for his children, and you don't have to fear. And it's taught me, stop dreading things, stop fearing things, because when you get there, it'll happen, maybe, some things we dread never happen, right? And then we've spent all that mental energy literally for nothing. But God's grace will be there when we get to the trial. What about desire? God-given desires should be anticipated and prayed for. But they don't always come in the expected time frame. You know, think about the Apostle Paul. He begged the Lord to take away his thorn in the flesh. Three times he said he begged God for that. And God never did. Instead, he gave them the answer, my grace is sufficient for you. Our trust must be greater than our desire. God is our good shepherd. Christ is the good shepherd. A sheep trusts that her shepherd knows what is best. Psalm 23, verse 1 up there on the screen, it says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not lack anything that he wants me to have. If God wants you to have it, you will have it. Nothing is too hard for God. If God wants to give you your desire, then he will. It's not too hard for me. Again, when we were asking God for a baby, I kind of came to the point where I realized, if God wants me to have a baby, I'll have one. It's not too hard for him. He gives people babies all the time, right? And uh, if he wants me to have one, I'll have one. It's not too hard for him. It really took the, the fear and the dread of not having a child and of every month finding out I'm not pregnant this month. It took it away. And it was like, God's my shepherd. He's going to give it to me when he wants me to have it. And if he doesn't, he's going to give me the grace to go without it. What about anger? James 1, 19 through 20 says, The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. That verse has rung in my head when I'm dealing with my children a lot. Because there's nothing that can make you more angry than children who are misbehaving and who are not obeying you. But the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. If I want God to work righteousness in my children, and I do more than anything, he's not going to do it through my anger. In fact, that works the opposite. So that has helped me overcome anger in, in the moment, in the situations where I am um, tempted to be angry with them. You know, anger properly placed in the right place and under control, anger against sin can accomplish a lot of things. I was talking to Terry Pate this week about the pregnancy center that she works at, you know? And there's, there's pregnancy centers like hers, crisis pregnancy centers, all over the, the country now because someone or a group of someones got really mad about babies being killed in their mother's womb. And they said, let's do something about this. That anger turned into a positive thing that has ended up saving many, many lives, right? And providing ministry opportunities for the gospel. But anger properly placed is a wonderful thing. But if it's out of control, much, much damage can be done. Emotional pain, last one, from loss. Where do we turn? What helps us when we're having emotional pain? Well, what I have found is that I grieve and I find consolation based on whatever habits I have already formed. We prepare ourselves to grieve when we're not grieving. The um, scripture tells us here in, in Job 23.10 that um, Job said, when I am tried, 
I will come forth as gold. But we have to remember that Job was a righteous man before he went into the trial. He was already gold, but he came forth as refined gold after the trial. So it doesn't mean that all of a sudden in a trial, God's going to change us into gold if we haven't been walking with him all along the way. We have to walk with him now so that when the grief comes, and sometimes it comes unexpectedly, that we are ready for it. And we are walking with God so that when our faith is tested, we will come forth as refined gold, as Job shared. We are very vulnerable when our faith is being tested. And other, our, our sisters in Christ are vulnerable when their faith is being tested. So we must pray for ourselves and pray for each other that God will help us and give us the grace to grieve properly when we go through emotional pain. One thing I love, Isaiah 53.3 says that Christ was acquainted with grief. He and grief knew each other, right? Grief over our sin, grief, grief over dying for our sins. There were emotions involved in that. And so Christ is our example of how to grieve. I know we went through this quickly, but God can give us the grace to turn emotions that we once used as weapons to manipulate others and get our way into tools that we can use to bring him glory. It's a process. It takes determination and hard work, and it doesn't happen overnight. But God is on our side. He wants us to do this. He wants us to be sober-minded, and he will help us. Scripture will correct our thinking so that we can respond to truth, not react to our feelings. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it helps us practically. And uh, even with something like emotions and that we feel out of control with um, sometimes, Lord, thank you that you understand us because you made us. And you know what is good for us and how we need to be thinking so that we can control and use the, the emotions that you've given us. Thank you for giving them to us, Lord. We know that life is so much better because of them. Help us to learn how to harness their energy and how to use them um, in ways that honor you, that make us useful to you, um, rather than to hurt people and to draw attention to ourselves and uh, to um, displease you with our thinking and our, and our acting and the way we treat other people. Lord, thank you for these ladies, for the wonderful weekend that we've had together. I pray that you'd bless each one of them, give safety as they go home, and uh, pray that they would be able to take what they used and apply it to their lives and to have good memories of the retreat that they had this weekend here at Southland. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.